0: All right, at this time, we'll begin this exciting podcast by Jan C. Scruggs, who is me, the guy who started the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, here today with uh, a real-life spy, espionage guy. Ex-spy. Cloak and dagger, all that, you know. And uh, his name is Jeff Stein, and uh, the Army thought he would be a good spy. So they sent him to Army Spy School, which is at Fort Holivered. Uh, unless this is a secret, secret or something it's, it's up in Baltimore And that's where we should train spies
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It was It's no longer at Fort Hollywood in Baltimore, it's down at Fort Huachuca in Arizona now Huachuca, yeah
0: Well How did you end up becoming a Spy? <laughs>
1: uh, well thanks for having me on Jan it's, a, it's an honor to be in your Company at any time but To be on the show is really terrific. Thanks a lot. Um, Well, becoming a spy was sort of my form of draft dodging. Uh, I was being, I got my draft notice in the summer of 1966. And at that time, as you well know, and many of your listeners know, that was almost a straight ticket to uh, Vietnam in the big money. Uh, And I like to say I didn't even like camping. So I, I knew I'd be no good at the infantry um so it turned out a friend of mine's brother was a army counterintelligence guy he did a lot of just you know security background checks and stuff like that for the most part and uh i said geez how do i get into that and he says "Well, you have to sign up for an extra year but anyway you should get into this other thing called area studies and you become kind of an intelligence analyst at an embassy i said like helsinki can i go there yeah anyway anyway so uh uh there was a tug of war between the draft board and the Army intelligence recruiter, but I finally did get into the Army intelligence program, and it turned out I wasn't going to be trained as an analyst. I was going to be trained as a spy. Um, was sort of a dramatic uh, moment in that first day at intelligence school. They drew down the blinds and put up a big red secret sign on the wall and said, "This is. we're going to tell you what this is all about, in case any of you really don't know at this point. Um, and it's the only thing you can, in the army that you can volunteer for and get out of change your mind after uh, this little lecture. So, anyway, uh, it was espionage training, just like you've to some degree seen in the movies. I was trained to um, spot, recruit, uh, train, and run a spy. Um, Uh, After that, that was like seven months of espionage training. We ran around Baltimore practicing dead drops and uh, invisible writing, secret photography, all those great spy tools that haven't changed a lot in in the decades, or I should say over the centuries. Um, Then I spent a year in language school. They sent me to Vietnamese language school to learn Vietnamese six hours a day for 47 weeks. I did that. And then I arrived in Vietnam, and I took over – an ongoing intelligence operation that was directed at communist troops, the local VC and North Vietnamese army troops. Uh, I had a bunch of spot, I had a principal agent who's called, and he had cells beneath him. And uh, they they traveled in the areas where, uh, that were occupied by the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese troops and eyeballed them, engaged them in conversation and so on, and reported back uh, through my principal agent to me, about the disposition of the enemy troops, we also got into political intelligence uh, as the months went on. So that was basically my job.
0: Now you've had quite a career post army. You've uh, done many things. You were the you ran UPI, United Press International. You've written books and articles, and uh, you've kept yourself rather busy.
1: Well, thanks. I didn't run UPI. If I had, it might still be a business. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was uh, a deputy foreign editor at uh, UPI. That was a fabulous job. Um, and it was during uh, in the 1980s, during the, you know, the tanker war and the Gulf and so on. Pretty exciting time. There was glasnost going on in the Soviet Union, uh, student riots in South Korea. There was uh, South Africa. uh uh uh, mandela's uh release uh so it was a lot of exciting things to do and we had correspondence in some 60 countries uh it was a you know back then it was a major news organization that was a terrific terrific job um and then that uh began to crumble uh financially um, and I got a book contract to write a book about a case in Vietnam that it always it always interested me about the Green Berets ex, uh, extrajudicial is the current term, extrajudicial execution of a suspected double agent. Uh, after which they were uh, indicted in the military form, which is an article 32 hearing. They were indicted for first degree murder in the middle of the war uh uh for killing this uh vietnamese spy they had on the payroll who they suspected was a double agent and i just always thought that was really a bizarre case um the the i I don't want to give it all away but President Nixon and the CIA intervened to get that charge dropped because it would have opened up a Pandora's box on the Phoenix program, the assassination program run by CIA and so on. It was a fascinating case. And so I did uh, do that book. It was called A Murder in Wartime, which debuted to wonderful reviews but suck like a stone. So, Yeah, it would
0: anyway. have been a great movie.
1: <laughs> and then when I, I went on to uh, write other books and, and uh, do a lot of magazine writing in the 1990s um and uh uh had some wonderful assignments that took me around the world uh and then uh uh congress and then came 9 11 and not long after that uh Congressional quarterly, which is actually a family of Publications, called me and asked me to start up a daily covering homeland security for them sure. yeah so I did that uh for um, uh, eight nine years, um, and we were really uh, we we were really on it. We were the leading publication covering homeland security, which was, of course, a very big hot topic at the time. And that company was sold, and forty five of us were dismissed. Um, and I ended up at the Washington Post uh, <laughs> <laughs> with uh, a column called Spy Talk, which I had begun while I was at CQ. Uh, begun as a weekly and then it became a five times a week daily uh, and it gained traction and so the post hired me and i was there uh for a year or so and it it wasn't doing all that well at the post and so and the post was really this is pro uh, pre bezos post and it was really suffering financially which is again suffering financially Mm -hmm. but anyway so my contract wasn't renewed but newsweek hired me so I continued doing spy talk at Newsweek for the next six, seven years. And then that came under new management. <laughs> and so uh, I was out there. And but uh, to bring us up to the present time and this long, dreary story, uh, I uh, Substack came along, this platform that allowed writers to publish their own materials and go out and ask for, ask invite people to subscribe. Yeah. So I and a bunch of like-minded, uh, long in the tooth national security journalists, people who yeah. had worked at Time and Newsweek and the Washington Post and so on, about a half a dozen of us got together and said, let's do a let's do spy talk on Substack. So we started in August, late August of two thousand, uh 2020, excuse me, and uh, it's it has been a huge success. I mean, we're not up there, you know, with millions and millions of, of readers like major media, but, you know, we have 21,000 subscribers, and we're we're read in the intelligence community, the foreign policy community, and we're getting good marks, good responses from readers, and, and we're working for ourselves, you know? Uh, so it's great fun. It's great fun.
0: Well, you know, I, I strive to make these uh, little podcasts relevant, and there are a lot of people out there who... Talk, talk to me about how they feel about things. And uh, sure. so how did we end up spending $2 trillion in Afghanistan? Did uh-huh. we have major intelligence failures there? Was there no planning? Was there a shotgun approach? Was the whole thing run by a bunch of idiots?
1: What
0: I happened think over there?
1: I, I suspect, you know, you and I know the answer to this, uh, Jan. And I suspect a lot of Vietnam veterans among your listenership, they know, too. We've seen this uh, rodeo, as we call it. We've seen this rodeo before where you start in with good intentions, reasonable objectives, and then big, powerful forces get involved and essentially blow the thing up into a huge enterprise, a big, overblown, out-of-date policy that, that doesn't work. And this is repeat. Vietnam was repeated in Afghanistan. The, as everyone can, most people here can remember, the Green Berets and CIA did a fabulous job in the opening weeks and months of yes. the campaign in Afghanistan. They routed, they routed the Taliban. Uh, and forced Al Qaeda out, uh, out of Afghanistan, and uh, had we washed our hands of it then and walked away, we would we could have counted that as a major success. Not not saying that Afghanistan wouldn't eventually have fallen back into the hands of the Taliban. Uh, the Taliban absolutely do represent a lot of the rural uh fundamentalists uh, deeply religious population and and ethnic groups um but uh you know ironically it was the george w bush administration which has campaigned against nation building and had knocked clinton for nation building suddenly they decided to become nation builders of course a lot of this was pushed by again big defense contractors pentagon wants to get involved send lots of troops uh, Air Force wants to get involved, send bombers, and pretty much we have a replica of the Vietnam situation, which, again, you know, to be generous, started out as a well-minded uh, uh, thing, uh, although there's there's a lot of debate about that. Um, but in any event, we, uh, you know, started out small, CIA, Green Berets, and so on, and we're making a lot of progress Um Uh, But when it started to go bad, you know, LBJ threw in hundreds of thousands of troops, and it turned into a real tragic, big-time disaster. And I think it was largely replicated in Afghanistan. And that's how we ended up spending—to answer your question, that's how we ended up spending $2 trillion and got nothing out of it. Worse than nothing.
0: Yeah, a lot of of heartache.
1: (laughs) Continuing. Continuing heartache.
0: People ask me, what are the— lessons of the Vietnam War, and I have a, a curriculum guide that I put together when I was running the Vietnam Memorial Fund downtown. And uh, it's just, uh, what what are the lessons of Vietnam? I'll tell you what, right after Vietnam, we had a little war in Panama and Grenada. And the next thing you know, we were in uh, dire straits. And we ended up in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Desert Storm, which for me was a real seminal event because all of a sudden war was interesting.
1: Wow. Uh, well, well not word. only that, you know, this after guy's de- their big hats on and yeah, <laughs> uh, there was a joke after Desert Storm that there was a big ribbon around the Pentagon that said "We do deserts, not jungles." Yeah. Uh and let's not forget, by the way, our disastrous, the Reagan administration's disastrous toe dipping into Lebanon, uh, which ended up, you know, getting a lot of Marines killed, uh, yeah. uh, and French forces, and our embassy demolished with the loss of several uh, important people. I mean, everyone's important, but there's uh, the CIA guy who was a back channel liaison to the PLO, Bob Ames, got killed. And many other CIA officers and and embassy personnel. So that was a a tragedy, too. But I think that the 100 hours war against uh, to to kick the Iraqis out of Kuwait, uh, you know, put the blood in our teeth and think, well, uh, and and led national security planners and the Bush administration to think, well, we can, uh, you know, we can kick anybody's ass. Sure. Uh, No, we can't. <laughs> At least not that way. <laughs> we can and make we're, a pretty good show though, that's for sure. And so we went in and broke all the China in Iraq. And that's, you know, we're still paying the price for that, but the Iraqis are paying even more, of course, with Iran back militias uh disrupting the country. It uh it's we got snookered on Iraq, these gullible neocons and the Bush administration, gullible and greedy.
0: The Eiffel Tower, they're going to do like the the American troops walking under the Eiffel Tower. That was the plan. That's how successful we would be. That was, I think, Paul Wolfowitz who came up with that idea, which didn't work, by the way.
1: Yeah, that would be welcome with flowers and candy. Um, And a number of Iraqis did welcome us originally, but there were so many immediate, without going through all it, yeah mess again, you know there were so many mistakes from the get go, somewhat parallel to Afghanistan um that we 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 made a dicey situation far worse and almost ensured our defeat there. I mean, we're still there, but you know just sort of hanging around, yeah, we're more observers than anything else in Iraq now, yeah. well. Do
0: you have any uh, wise words for our vast listening audience?
1: (laughs) Something uplifting after all that jury talk? Um, uh, boy. Well, I'm a hawk on Ukraine. Um, uh, Maybe because I'm a Cold War baby. Um, I think that uh, the lesson of Munich was drilled into my head, and I don't think I think that Ukraine is a place for us to make a stand. Uh, when, I, when I say we, I mean to back the Ukrainians who are fighting for their lives to oust invasion by Russia.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, I mean. and,
1: and it's very clear that that Putin has designs beyond Ukraine, and and if he doesn't right now, he certainly would upon the uh domination of Ukraine if he ends up doing that and and the idea that Republicans for for just pathetic political reasons would deny Ukraine backing right now is 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 worrisome and upsetting and uh and could be calamitous um so I'm hoping that that these that enough Republicans will join with Democrats come to their senses and And this stunt that the Republicans are pulling on the border with border policies, which need to be addressed for sure, because Republicans themselves have blocked a lot of solutions to border issues. I know this as a former specialist in homeland security for years. I I, I know how uh, the votes have gone on border security issues, which is not an easy problem to solve, but it's a bipartisan issue. In any event, um, so Ukraine, I'm, I'm hopeful uh that the ukrainians can hold out and we'll come to their aid uh middle east what a mess uh netanyahu has dragged us into this quagmire and uh uh i i i i don't think we're gonna we're, we're not gonna get involved with troops on the ground boots on the ground in the middle east i mean that would be suicide and ridiculous um um I think our strategy will be to try to help Israelis wipe out Hamas instead of killing you know tens of thousands of Palestinians uh because that's what the goal is, is to wipe out Hamas as a threat um and other uh Ar- 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 Iranian proxies. They can't eliminate Hamas in general, but they can at least quell this particular um threat. Uh, hopefully getting the hostages back. but it's it's, it's a mess. Um, you know I I'd like to be more optimistic in general. I mean I'm we grew up, Jan you and me in an era where uh, we thought you know that there're always going to be reverses in life, things go bad, uh, Vietnam was bad, the racial strife is bad but but we're always going getting better in this country. Um, things we always had kind of a faith that things would get better right now I think uh, I think I I'm probably typical of a lot of Americans who are really sitting uh you know feel like I'm sitting on a precipice um and that we could go off a cliff uh that and and I uh, you know all we can do is try to put one foot in front of the other every day be kind to others do good works uh, um add value to our lives and lives around us and 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 you know, take our Vietnam experience and use it in daily life of, of persistence and survival.
0: Well, I'm certainly hoping for the best for the uh, the Ukrainians. I mean if the Russian tanks ever move into Kiev, uh, you know they'll attack, who knows? Who Abba in in uh, Sweden will be gone? who knows you know the, the uh-huh. Russians have an, uh, an appetite of of late to take over other countries so they certainly
1: have an ap- appetite for the Baltics
0: yeah, the Balkans yeah they're another tender box about to be lit, hopefully not anyway, be of good cheer. things are better than they seem. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I hope you're. I'm right. from
0: uh, Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. I'm with Jeff Stein and uh, Jan Scruggs here, and I say, God bless America.
1: Likewise, I'm in yeah. with you on that. Thanks, Jan. Hey, Bye bye.